Good morning. My name is Chipper. I'm one of the pastors here. It's really great to be with you. Um, welcome, especially to the families um, from out of town that might be visiting. We love you. It's great to spend this time with you. Um, our scripture passage this morning is from the book of Psalms, specifically Psalm 92. And we're actually concluding, believe it or not, our summer series in the Psalms because the next two Sundays we have special messages next Sunday during that 9 a.m. service. We will be combining with all of those families from India that are part of the retreat. We will all be worshiping together, and Ebi Parimbaraj will be preaching, and I've been looking forward to that for a very long time. Then the following Sunday, we'll actually be hearing from Chris Musgrove, who uh, directs a faith and work program here in Gainesville, and so you will hear from them. Both messages will be in Colossians, and God will surely use it. Please stand if you are physically able to stand for the reading of God's word in Psalm 92. The passage will be up here on the screen. If you do have a Bible, we would encourage you to follow along with us that way as well. Psalm 92, verse 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your works. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, They are doomed to destruction forever, but you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Let's pray together. Lord, I do pray that you would instruct us duly this morning concerning the nature of what it looks like to rest as your people, and to give thanks and to celebrate accordingly. And I understand that there are people here this morning who can't imagine anything approaching rest, and so I pray for them in particular that the nature of this passage and the work of the Spirit would lift up their heads for your glory and for their joy. I second Ryan's prayer for the children that we just dedicated, Lord, that they would grow up and joyfully follow Christ Jesus which is a miraculous occasion, a miraculous event. And so we we plead with you, Lord, for their souls. We love you so much. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Goodness, we are finally getting a bit positive here in our summer series in the Psalms, a series called Seasons in which we've been talking about what it looks like to walk with God in various seasons of our lives. So far, we've talked exclusively 
about difficult seasons, shame, discontentment, fear, despair, and then last week, sin, which makes sense because life tends to be rather difficult in Psalms. The Psalms is a real-life book. In fact, one of the marks of the Bible's legitimacy and, and trustworthiness is its very bracing honesty about the human experience. If you want the, the sugar-coated, feel-good kind of stuff, maybe you can visit one of those dedicated year-round Christmas stores and, and buy some ornaments or something, or maybe watch the Hallmark Channel, which just yesterday released a new movie about a marine mammalogist visiting the Pacific Northwest to study orcas. Will she herself get caught up in the current of love? Find out for yourself by watching A Splash of Love, Saturdays at 8, 7 Central, or online on demand. So if that's what you want, that's where you can go. But even though life is difficult, and the Bible is a real-life book, we also experience seasons of rest. Seasons of rest on account of maybe deliverance from difficult seasons, or on account of specific provisions or gifts from the Lord, or perhaps by honoring the Lord's command for us to rest, something we'll unpack in more detail later this morning. And then what? How should we respond when we're experiencing rest? What, if anything, should we do? I understand that for some of us, the season described as restful is, at best, a very distant memory. Maybe we're parents of young children and we make these snarky jokes about resting in the restroom or maybe getting arrested so we can finally sit down. Or maybe we're in prolonged seasons of academic intensity or work stress or physical pain. If this restlessness describes you, we love you, and we will speak into these circumstances as we go. Psalm 92 is for you, especially for you, despite your restlessness. Two exhortations this morning concerning how we might walk with God in seasons of rest. Exhortation number one, we give thanks. Then number two, we gain perspective. Two exhortations when we're walking with God in seasons of rest. Give thanks and gain perspective. Let's start with that first exhortation. Give thanks. The title ascribed to Psalm 92, which you, you can see if you have your Bible open, tells us that it's a song for the Sabbath, referring to the Sabbath day that God commanded the Israelites to set aside each week for spiritual and physical rest. See, for example, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 10, which is the fourth of what we often call the Ten Commandments. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. You can also see the same kind of thing in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 3. Six days 
shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation, referring to a gathering for public worship. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all of your dwelling places. Isn't it surprising, at least at face value, that God had to command Sabbath, to command rest? Imagine growing up in a family where your parents set you down and said, the main thing we want to emphasize in this house is rest. We don't want anyone working too hard out there. Perhaps a few of you overachiever types have some, have some whatabouts you'd like to address. You can keep those to yourself, and congrats on winning your elementary school spelling bee. Most of us would not have needed that kind of command. However, at least in adulthood, all human beings are inclined to toil very anxiously and or rest passively. We're inclined to toil anxiously and or rest passively, both of which have to do with malformed understandings of who God is and our failure to trust what we do know about. We toil anxiously because we forget or don't truly believe that God is the all-powerful provider, and so we take matters into our own hands and we descend into this exhausting abyss of self-dependence. We rest passively because we don't find God all that fascinating, and we forget or don't believe that one of the things God provides is rest for our souls and for our bodies. So instead of actively directing our attention to him for rest, we default to resting in whatever we do find fascinating and convenient, maybe our phones and the personalized videos YouTube plays for us next according to its algorithms. Now the Sabbath command makes a whole lot of sense. God knows our habits and designs his commandments accordingly. Toilers need to be told to rest, and passive resters need to be redirected. This was true for the Israelites, and it's just as true for us today, even though the way we Sabbath looks different and is no longer integrated into the ceremonial structures of the Old Covenant. And what is the nature of this Sabbath rest that God commanded. Verse 1, it had a whole lot to do with giving thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to his name. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work, at the works of your hands. I sing for joy. Sabbath rest is a unique space for hyper-awareness concerning God's presence and his character 
and his work. And that hyper-awareness naturally fosters thanksgiving unto the Lord as we intentionally consider his goodness and his faithfulness and the mighty works of his hands. Sabbath practices such as silence and prayer and corporate singing and hearing and meditating on Scripture, they give us desperately needed reminders concerning God. And then we give thanks, not just because we're commanded to give thanks, but because we can't help it. And our expressions of thanksgiving end up shoring up and completing our joy. Thanksgiving is therefore good, verse 1, and that it glorifies God and displays his mostness to one another in the world. And it's good for us spiritually and emotionally in that it redirects our affections and completes our joy. Don't we see this dynamic at play even when we express appreciation to other people? It honors the recipient. And then there's something about expressing the appreciation to someone else that's very joyful and satisfying. Active Sabbath rest is therefore an occasion for thanksgiving and actually a reason for thanksgiving as well. And conversely, rest without thanksgiving short circuits our experience of joy in the Lord and frankly isn't true rest at all. It's like buying a movie ticket and then sitting in the lobby for two and a half hours. Technically, you went to the movies I guess that's kind of an archaic phrase now, but work with me. You went to the movies, but also not really. You were there, but you didn't see anything. You were resting, but you didn't give thanks. And so you sabotage your own joy. Earlier I told you that restless folks should pay very close attention to Psalm 92 anyway. And this is why. God bakes rhythms of Sabbath rest into our existence that are independent of our external circumstances and actually help us reframe the way we think about those circumstances. Even when the world seems to be disintegrating around us, which is exactly what it feels like these days, God gives us permission to pause. In fact, he, he commands us to stop and enjoy a season of rest. Why? That we might become more aware of the mighty ways God has worked in our lives and in the lives of others, both in the present and throughout history, and then give thanks for all of that and experience true joy. Thanksgiving also reckons with our anxiety, since, and this is something that the pastor and author Mark Sayers has been pointing out time and time again, Thanksgiving reckons with our anxiety, since anxiety and independence have this toxic, codependent relationship with one another. Our, our pining for independence and for autonomy, they end up making us anxious when we succeed. So Thanksgiving reminds us of our dependence upon the Lord and 
horizontally our dependence upon God's people, which actually undermines our anxiety and gives us peace. This Sabbath resting requires a certain amount of faith, doesn't it? I mean, you can see this, faith that, that God will sustain us in the midst of our, of our stopping, that we could actually stop and our, and our little worlds wouldn't just fall apart. Faith that the joy will come as we reflect on God's works and give thanks. Faith that our anxiety will become less potent. And it requires intentional, sacrificial community. Part of our responsibility to one another and the family of God is to help one another Sabbath, especially those in uniquely challenging and rigorous seasons. How dare we exhort, for example, an exhausted single parent to Sabbath and then sit on our hands? Hey, you need to get more rest. Well, what are you going to do about it to help that person get that Sabbath rest? One of the signs of a culture problem in a church family is a rest imbalance, you might say, in which some folks seem to be getting all kinds of rest and others are living on fumes. If you find yourself heading out for a weekend of, of recreation again and again and again and again while, while brothers and sisters in the body of Christ are getting crushed with the burdens of their particular circumstances, something is probably wrong. Behold the beauty of Sabbath rest, a rhythm that wisely involves, I would say in line with biblical principles, an hour a day, a day a week, and then a week a year of intentional Sabbath stopping. And if you really want to get technical, a whole year after seven years. That one's really interesting to see. Behold the beauty of Sabbath rest that God bakes into our existence, where we have the permission, I would say really the command, an hour a day, a day a week, even a week a year, to stop. And then as we stop our normal work, to give thanks. Now, we also experience rest in other ways, such as when the Lord delivers us out of difficult seasons or maybe gives us specific provisions or gifts. And guess what? Thanksgiving is once again the appropriate response, keeping in mind a couple of key themes that emerge in verses 1 through 4. Number one, giving thanks and singing praises is more of a, a mood. It's more of an attitude than a one-off thing. A regular expression of gladness that is essentially a limitless joy intensifier. The more you give thanks, the more joy you experience as you walk with the Lord. So it's kind of your call. How much joy do you want to experience? Give thanks. Joyful people are people who make it a habit of giving thanks in the morning and in the evening, verse 2, certainly on the Sabbath day, which is the immediate context here, but also, quite frankly, every day. And once again, Thanksgiving completes our experiences of rest. Provision without Thanksgiving is such a waste. It's such a missed opportunity. 
And then theme number two, the context of the Sabbath day. Plus the references to, to musical instruments you see there in, in verse three reminds us that thanksgiving should be part of our corporate worship and is therefore communal. Certainly we can and, and should give thanks in the quiet of our rooms. That's part of it. But we also give thanks in the company of other people who need to be encouraged by your thanksgivings and may well be reminded of additional reasons why they should give thanks. When you give thanks, you are serving other people who need to see you giving thanks and be reminded of reasons why they should also give thanks. Corporate thanksgiving is a form of corporate reminding which leads to even more thanksgiving and corporate experiences of joy. You want to see the Spirit of God move among you? Spend an hour together, together giving thanks and see what happens. And maybe toss a, a lute, you know, which is probably a, a ten-string instrument or, or maybe, maybe a harp in there, and things might get certifiably rowdy. Not only will all of this thanksgiving glorify God and give you joy, it will keep you from being prideful and excessively self-focused, which otherwise would probably put you in the company of the stupid people, to quote verse 6, we'll discuss in just a moment. As we talked about earlier, thanksgiving reminds us of our dependency upon the Lord, and honestly, how ridiculous it is to celebrate ourselves to the Lord's blessing. Plus, Thanksgiving protects us from being overwhelmingly self-referential in our speech and in our worship, which tends to be a prevailing sin in our very individualistic age and one of the primary signs of spiritual immaturity. We get over ourselves in a godly way, we become self-forgetful in part through the practice of giving thanks. If you have a thanksgiving deficiency in your life, you will have an overabundance of self-referencing chatter and thoughtfulness and so on and so forth. We get over ourselves in part through the practice of thanksgiving. We guard ourselves from just insufferable pride and self-concern. And you know, regardless of the day, regardless of the season, there's a restful provision for which we can always give thanks. My dad was a very excellent piano player, at least I think so, I'm biased, but he was. And when I was growing up, he loved to spontaneously slide open the cover of the the Clavinova keyboard in our living room and just start playing something. His favorite song, you could debate, but I think, was Give Thanks or Give Thanks with a Grateful Heart, which he turned into this like extravagant instrumental masterpiece. And the lyrics go like this. Give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks because he's given Jesus Christ his son. And now, 
Let the weak say, I am strong. Let the poor say, I am rich. Because of what the Lord has done for us. And then it just goes again and again and again. That's all it is. That's the whole song. One of the glories of having Christ is that we get to give thanks for having Christ an opportunity that guarantees us that joy in the Lord is always within reach. Have you ever considered that? At all times, we can give thanks to the Lord for what he's done for us in Christ, for giving us freedom from sin and death on account of Jesus Christ crucified and raised for us. So church, when we're in the despair pits, as we talked about a couple of Sundays ago, it's actually very reasonable to ask ourselves, have I given thanks to the Lord today because he's given me Jesus Christ, his son? And when we ask ourselves that question and respond accordingly, there's a very good chance that this relatively simple consideration of God's greatest work, you might say, will help us agree with the psalmist in verse 5 when he says, How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. In Christ, we always have a reason to look up, metaphorically and literally, and give thanks on account of God's awesome wonder and majesty, and then rejoice. How compelling is that opportunity in our increasingly disrupted world? I don't know what podcasts you're listening to, but all the ones I'm listening to are, are, are pretty cynical these days. Aside from, from knowing and having Christ, gratitude continues to look less and less plausible, if not kind of foolish. Cynicism is, is winning right now. Negativity is winning. But in the midst of all of this disruption, Cherishing and hoping in Christ becomes actually sweeter and sweeter as we see the day of Christ's return draw closer and closer. The more disrupted, the more chaotic things get out there, the sweeter having and hoping in Christ becomes. And in fact, when things are all well and good and rather peaceful, having and savoring Christ often gets knocked down a couple of pegs in our minds. Disruption and chaos is an opportunity for the sweetness of having and giving thanks for Christ to be put on display. Speaking of a disrupted age, rest affords us yet another opportunity that I'd like to turn our attention to here in verses 6 through 15. Yes, rest is for thanksgiving, but here's the second exhortation in seasons of rest, or even just, just in moments of rest. Seize the opportunity, church, to intentionally gain perspective. Look with me at, at verses 6 through 9. The stupid man cannot know, which is not a word we're supposed to use in our house, but here it is in Scripture, and I'm just reading it. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, 
they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. One of the most vexing challenges that followers of Jesus encounter as they walk with God is this perceived reality that people who are not walking with God seem to be doing quite well for themselves, including people who do evil. So, so here we are, sacrificially pursuing faithfulness unto the Lord, while evildoers flourish, and their plans seem to succeed. And this isn't always perception. I wish it was, but this is not always perception. Sometimes evildoers really do succeed in some sense. The wicked really do sprout up like grass. I'm sure you can think of many geopolitical circumstances, past and present, that fit that bill. Some of you might even experience this in, in the marketplace. I've, I've had conversations with some of you, perhaps working underneath the authority of a, of a, of a harsh or maybe a, a controlling boss. And my goodness, when we're, in, when we're in the blender, when we are keenly aware of some of the real costs of following Jesus, the perceived triumphs of those who are against God can be really hard to take. It can be remarkably disorienting and frustrating, possibly contributing to bitterness and even spiritual doubt. A spiritual fog can set in, clouding our spiritual vision. A fog that just gets deeper and deeper as the rigors and the trials of this life continue on with, with mounting intensity. So we Sabbath, we discipline ourselves to stop that we might gain some perspective by considering the true end of the wicked and the righteous. Yes, the wicked might sprout and flourish for a season, but like weeds, they fade and die as quickly as they appear. The Lord is on high forever, but evildoers, no matter how confident and self-assured they might be, are doomed to destruction forever. Stupid people forget that the day of the Lord is coming, and they plow right on ahead with their unfaithfulness, sometimes getting a big old kick out of it. But the people of God stop to remember that the day of the Lord is coming. A day of judgment and destruction for the pridefully rebellious who persist in worshiping themselves and other false gods. A day of triumph by God's grace for the weak and the poor who have become strong and rich in Christ Jesus. You might not see that Strength and richness physically now, but oh my goodness, will you see it on the coming day of the Lord. It will be radiant. And here's another way to look at it. Resting helps us reclaim the long view. A more eternal perspective. While ceaseless toil and passive rest gives us this, this kind of tunnel vision which culminates in exasperation and hopelessness, or here's yet another way to look at it. 
and this is basically where we'll end, resting helps us rightly locate ourselves within the drama of God's story. It helps us know where we are. Restless living, this is just gonna, this is just gonna kill some of you. Restless living is akin to having a, a two-year-old pull your bookmark out of war and peace. Can you imagine that? Like you hadn't read it in a month, and you got the bookmark pulled out, and you have no idea where you are. And then what happens? You get lost, you get frustrated. You are tempted to give up the entire enterprise. Rest relocates us. It helps us discern the flow of the narrative, which helps us persevere in our faithfulness with such great joy. A narrative that is bookended, I kid you not, I am not making this up, this is just all glory to God and the coolness of the Bible, a narrative that is bookended by perfect Sabbath rest. The biblical narrative is actually a story of garden rest corrupted by sin, followed by all sorts of attempts to find rest and meaning outside of God, only to find out that Jesus is the only one who can help us recover our rest. And by the way, he invites us to recover that rest. And one day, Jesus will bring us into the very presence of God, where we will enjoy perfect garden rest once again. And enjoy it forever. So resting in God helps us locate ourselves between these bookended rest points, you might say. And those who repent of their restless attempts to find rest without God become part of a spiritual family destined for this eternal Sabbath. Which means that even now the righteous, those who are in Christ, those who have surrendered themselves unto the Lord, put their hope in him, who have saddled Jesus with their burden, those people become, even now, verses 12 through 15, like the palm tree, and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. They declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. You become like the cedars of Lebanon. Like the majesty of the cedars of Lebanon even now. And you will flourish into eternity by the grace of God on account of the rest he gives you in Jesus, rest that was lost but is found in Christ and will endure, if you're in Christ, forevermore. Pause to find yourself, people of God, in the narrative and experience so much joy and hope in a very disrupted and cynical world. That's a reason to give thanks. Amen.